0: Uh, Welcome back to uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine I'm so glad to have you here Whether you're a regular loyal listener uh, Of the past uh, decade or whether you're Brand new to the show uh, Welcome 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 um, And uh, tonight uh, I am uh, happy to have uh, I think two guests <laughs> um, The first uh, Is Trelawney Grenfell Muir and uh, our topic uh, Is uh, We're going to delve into if uh, Bible stories can heal sexism And patriarchy um, It's almost uh, like uh, You know we're asking the question Can and healing the Bible, uh, heal the community. Um, so we're going to get into that. And then in the second half of the show, um, I hope I have a second guest tonight. Uh, Anine Vandermeer uh, is supposed to be calling in uh, from uh, across the pond over in Europe. Uh, she has an incredible book out uh, called The Language of Ma, The Primal Mutter, Mother, Mother, uh, The Evolution of the Female Image in 40,000 Years. Years of global Venus art. Um, so if she figures out uh, how to call in, um, I'm sure we will uh, talk to her in the uh, in, in the second hour of the show. Uh, but because we have two guests, um, I don't want to take a long time with an intro. Uh, but I do want to tell you that I have some great stuff uh, from Pat, our roving reporter, uh, to share. Uh, you know, between guests tonight. Uh, so please, um, if um you only called to tune in to my conversation with Trelawney. Please stay for the second hour uh, and uh, also hear the, the great stuff that uh, Pat, the roving reporter has sent in for me to share with you tonight. So uh, let's get going here with our first show. Um, I want to start by introducing you to Trelawney Grenfell Muir. Uh, she's an author, professor, and peace builder. She writes and teaches on topics of feminism, cross-cultural conflict, ethics, sex, data marriage parenting education conflict transformation i like that phrase and peace building uh she holds uh in uh um a Minister of Divinity from uh, Boston uh, University School of Theology with Concentration in Religion and Conflict and a Ph.D. in Conflict Studies and Religion with the University Professors Program at Boston U. Uh, She was a fellow at the Institute of Culture, Religion, and World Affairs and at the Earhart Foundation. She's conducted field research in situations of ongoing conflict in Syria, Lebanon, and Northern Ireland. Her dissertation explores the methodology, constraints, and Effectiveness of Clergy Peace Builders in Northern Ireland, and she's been an invited speaker in community settings and at MIT, Boston U, Tufts, uh, Boston College uh, on topics of gender violence, economic injustice, religious or ethnic conflicts, and she's also moderated panels on genetic engineering, cloning, and other bioethic issues. Uh, She has already done a lifetime of work (laughs) uh, and much, much, much needed work. Um, So let me just say welcome Trelawney Grenfell-Muir to Voices of the Sacred Feminine.
1: Thank you, Karen. It's really wonderful to be here on this incredible show you've put together
0: oh uh, well thank you thank you so much um you know I feel like we all have pieces of the puzzle and you know it's it's uh, my pleasure to give uh people like you with so much wisdom and experience a platform to share their thoughts and and ideas and uh you know you came to my attention uh from the feminism in religion blog which everybody out there needs to know about go google it after the show uh feminism in religion dot com you can find the blog there uh wonderful um uh essays and ideas are always being shared there and uh that's how uh, i learned about your work and um what I, I guess it really kind of stuck out for me because you're into rewriting our sacred stories and that's something that i've been talking about too in fact i you know gave a talk at the council for the parliament of world religions when they were here in utah um so this is kind of a subject. Uh, you know, after my own heart here, because I do believe it. I mean, we've learned that uh, our mythology shapes our culture, so until we change our stories, we don't change our culture, more or less, right?
1: Absolutely. Perfectly said.
0: Okay, um, so um, uh, tonight we're going to be talking a bit about that I also want to talk about a couple of your essays um, So let's start with um, what inspired you to start rewriting Not goddess myths like I kind of talk about But you're talking about um, re- uh, rewriting Bible stories Where did that inspiration come from?
1: Yeah, I you know, <laughs> I really think that the distinction between between your writing these goddess myths and me rewriting Bible stories is um, not very big, honestly. I love your work. But uh, for me, it was a very long, long journey that started, I think, when I was a young child. I think I was probably, who knows, six, seven, eight. And you just start noticing language. And uh, I remember my mother teaching me that, it was correct grammatically to say everyone pass in his paper instead of, you know, their papers or something like that. And as a very young child, I remember not liking that and just feeling excluded by that and feeling that why should boys be more important, you know? That makes no sense to Mm -hmm. me. And um, then getting older and learning that the term man meant... You know, all of humanity sometimes, but other times it meant, you know, go in this bathroom, right, not that bathroom, and uh, mm-hmm. again, feeling feeling unhappy about that at some level, just resisting it at some level, right, and not yeah just feeling as though why are men more important than women, you know, and things like police and firemen, so the the idea that language actually mattered. It just made sense to me from a young age, and I have to credit my father. He, um, you know, of course, in some ways he was sexist and a product of his generation or whatever, but I remember he was actually, he cared about this issue, and he, he, you know, he used to say, whose world is it? It's our world, Mm -hmm. you know? We can change it and make it what we want. And he had my, he encouraged my older sister Tamar Lee to write to the main state legislatures and ask them to change. I think it was change the language in the state constitution so that instead of saying men, then it said people or something. I don't remember the details. That's not what stuck in my mind. What stuck in my mind was whose world is it? And
0: it's not
1: okay to use language that excludes.
0: Well, you know, you're reminding me of um, another issue of language. I forgot uh, who the scholar was, uh, but I spoke about it on my show and in my talks. Um, and it was a woman who had an indigenous background, and um, she talked about how uh, when the when the first pilgrims came, uh, their language was so different from the indigenous people, um, and they called uh, trees, you know, like maybe a a beautiful 500-year-old tree or, you know, some sort of glorious animal species. They were always it, and it didn't carry a lot of value, so it was easy for it uh, to become a commodity and uh, you know instead of referring to it as a sacred tree or a sacred beast or something like that just by virtue oh, yeah. of the it um, it we were uh, we marginalized it and made it less valuable and now we could buy it and sell it or own it um, and uh, you know so I you know that. Uh, I think kind of part of it too you know the problem of language
1: oh yeah that's, huh, that's really powerful actually and <laughs> I agree that the way we symbolize things has incredible power and so my journey when it led me eventually to seminary I had um, a class my first year in seminary in 2001 at Boston University with Tiffany Steinwert um, giving a lecture. She was, the professor was um, Brian Stone, who's now the dean of the school, but um, he was always very supportive of feminism, and Tiffany Steinwert is the dean of the Wellesley Chapel now at Wellesley College, and she gave this lecture on feminist theology that <laughs> completely changed my life because up until that point, I had been, you know, because of my dad, we had always changed words to songs we didn't like if they, you know, said men or mankind or things like this. But she connected the dots for me that, wait a minute, you know, if we're symbolizing the divine as male, predominantly male or exclusively male, then that means that males are more in the divine image than females. And that means that females aren't in the divine image and not as much as males, and that means we're not fully human and uh that justifies all kinds of sexist violence, various structural violence like discrimination and you know wage gaps and glass ceilings and you know access to health care as well as direct violence, like you know selective abortion and infanticide and rape and assault and all of these all of these kinds of violence they need to be justified people need to have an idea of why this violence is justified, why it makes sense, what legitimizes it, and the idea that that ends up being the cause of the violence is the symbols and mythology and what Johann Galtung, the sociologist would call the cultural violence that actually Sorry. is really the root of it, is the cause of it. And I mean that just changed my life. I mean it was this little light bulb went off.
0: Well, and I think it also explains how women can become complicit in their own oppression. Uh, You know, you look at the women who uh, can stand behind a rapist. Uh, You know, you look at a woman who can support patriarchal religion that marginalizes and diminishes her and relegates her basically to a baby-making machine or tells her what she can or can't do with her body. And, uh, you know, it it feels like they have fallen victim to the brainwashing of the language to be less than uh, to simply be in service to rather than equal.
1: Yeah, and I think in addition to that, there's, well, I think there's there's a couple of things at play. One of them is I think that people try to cozy up to the bully a bit. They, I think, honestly, most women, whether they admit it or not, live in complete terror about the epidemic of violence against female bodies in our society, and it's 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 a holocaust, you know. And women either try to fight against it, or they try to hide from it by hiding behind men that they hope will protect them, and structures mm-hmm. and symbols, male strengths, that they hope will protect them. And that's similar to um, how the the religions themselves developed these hierarchical male symbol sets because as as far as i learned as the communities transitioned from an agrarian society to an agricultural society then this their identity shifted and they became more patriarchal it became about land ownership and passing down property to one's genetic offspring and women being you know needed to be guarded in order to protect that property and that lineage and gender roles becoming more and more rigid and divisive, and therefore symbols for the divine gradually becoming more male and more hierarchical and so these divine symbols of king and master and lord and you know ruler and things like this they're not accidental i mean they they evolved as the community evolved into a hierarchical you know patriarchal agricultural community that wanted to feel safe because fear is, you know, the biggest problem in human the con- human condition, fear and uncertainty. Yeah. And they wanted to feel safe. And so they wanted to feel as though their god could beat up Marduk, you know, the neighboring god, and that <laughs> they had the biggest bully on their side. The biggest strong man on the block was on their side. And I think that exact dynamic is still at play when you have women supporting Trump or women you know really hiding behind very overtly you know, sexist meaning constructs whether they're religious or whether they're not just you know they're they're trying to protect themselves in what way that they they can and it, it, I feel bad for them in a way but at the same time it's frustrating <laughs>
0: Well, and and, and I, I believe you that there's fear, uh, even if it's um, uh, unconscious. But I think we also have to acknowledge that, and, and maybe you're saying that, um, but I guess I just want to say it using these words, they benefit from uh, siding with the oppressor. And it might not just be about fear. It might be about um you know uh having a better life or um having more opportunities or status or something like that, you know, um, because I used to think you know why don 't all women stick together? you know uh, why are some women complicit in their own oppression but if you're a you know if you 're a white woman who's married to a rich white male, um, then you know you have a you know you you have a lot to lose, uh, so to speak, you know um, uh, the, your comforts and your privileges, um, you know, become maybe more important than these these ethics and morality. I think that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I would say that's true, and I think that it it's still in my to me, it still comes back to a kind of fear, where it's not freedom. You know, you're choosing oppression. Instead of freedom, because freedom is too scary, mm-hmm. and so you're choosing a comfortable oppression <laughs> instead of yeah. freedom. And you'll, you know, there's always a subset of oppressed people that choose oppression. There, there are, you know. Gay people who who are opposed to marriage equality. There were slaves who opposed um, the abolition of slavery. I mean, there are there are always people who oppose their own liberation because there's something about their own liberation that feels too scary. And part of that is probably just uncertainty. You know, like this is familiar. Mm-hmm. This I know. And if I step outside of this. That's terrifying, and, you know, it's there's a comfort, like you said, in um, staying in my comfy little prison cage where at least I know the rules and I know I'm somewhat going to be, you know, protected in certain ways and I have certain kinds of privilege and whatnot. Freedom can be scary.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I was teaching at case for the Queen of Heaven um, a curriculum once and uh, at the break one of the women came up to me in tears saying that she was so sorry but she had to leave because she knew everything that was uh, you know that I was presenting was true uh, but it was too scary for her because uh, it, it, she had to leave she couldn't listen to anymore uh, because in order for her to um, you know, take this in and make it a part of her life, it would have basically um, skewed everything, you know, relationship with husband, family, uh, all of the social settings, you know, that she was a part of. And she just couldn't have that apple cart upset and um, uh, split open or whatever you want to call it um but, it, but I I feel like at least she was aware of it you know um, I mean I grew up in the bible belt and if I hadn't come out to california and learned about the sacred feminine and feminism i, I it, it scares me to death to think that i could have spent my entire life Thinking everything around me was normal, I wouldn't have known about any of this, um, and uh, I, I would have just been totally ignorant of patriarchy and all the rest, you know. And I and I know some women go their entire lives and never learn about this stuff
1: well and that's where you know again i as i as i started saying about being on a journey i do try to keep in mind that everybody is on their own journey and that it took me a long time to get to where I am a really long time. And I had a much more sort of liberative foundation than a lot of people have. And, you know, like I said, just with my dad, having my my older sister write in about the language of the legislature and saying, whose world is it? And changing, you know, words from, you know, men and children everywhere to all God's children everywhere in a hymn or whatever. I mean, that's so much more than a lot of people got in the seventies, you know, and eighties. And, um, and, And so it it evolved over time, and then I went to seminary, and I was in a way much more ripe for a message of feminist theology than a lot of people, and a lot of my colleagues who sat through the same lecture I did, they didn't then turn around and go use inclusive language in all of their churches after that, when they became pastors, because, you know, it was just, it was too hard, it was too scary, it was too painful to deal with all the conflict that that can cause, whereas for me... Um, it, it's not like I instantly then started using only inclusive language and everything either. It took years. It took being a part of um, my twin sister, Tallison Grenfell-Lee. She's an ethicist, and she was also the music director at a Methodist congregation that was specifically for uh, the queer community, mostly, and other marginalized people. And she ended up rewriting uh, hundreds of hymns and other liturgies to use in their services to make them inclusive and to make them very gay and lesbian friendly and whatnot. And, uh, and so being able to sing all of these rewritten hymns all the time was another part of my foundation that that church and her work really helped with. And gradually we were able even to rewrite the Christmas hymns and the old favorites and the ones we sang when we were marching in this protest or whatever, until all of them were rewritten to be liberative and gender inclusive. And then after that, you know, it, 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 was, a, it was still another step to move from that to the Bible, right? And um, I think really for that I have to credit my children, <laughs> and you know it's funny I was thinking when you were reading my my bio it doesn't say anything about being a mother and how sad that I didn't even put that in there because <laughs> that's our patriarchal culture there trying to make me define my authority or my legitimacy or you know why I should why anybody should listen to me based on these other structures when in reality I think being a mother probably is the thing that has taught me the most and qualified me the most and actually is what prompted me writing these stories.
2: Right, you know? right, right. And, right. Uh, right. and so, for
1: yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's so wrong that the skills and the wisdom that motherhood requires and gives us is something that even I didn't think to put in my bio, you know. So I'm on this journey, <laughs> yeah. and there are people along the journey and there are people on different journeys and I've gotten to where I am because of them and because of, you know, all of the things that I've learned along the way and so I want to make sure that I don't want anybody to feel as though I'm going to beat them up if they're not exactly where I am on this journey either, you know.
0: Yeah, it takes a, it takes a while to get there for some of us, um, and uh, I think some people stop along the journey, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and maybe don't take it as far as others. But um, you know, we all have to uh, do what we can and what we feel called to do, and um, you know, no judgment there.
1: Well, and we're continuing to learn, you know. I mean, I I hope that. These stories that I've written, you know, a lot of people would consider it sacrilegious to rewrite a Bible story, right? Um, mm-hmm. For me, personally, you know, I—that's not—that's not how I see it. I mean, when, when I was. No, the, the way this first started was we were driving home from Sunday school and my daughters asked me about the Garden of Eden story that they had been talking about in Sunday school that day and they were just confused. So they were like, well, we read this story about these people in a garden and we don't understand the point of it. And I don't know, they were maybe six and eight at the time. And so I started to kind of try to tell them this story. They said, well, will you just tell us this story yourself? And I said, okay. And I opened my mouth to tell the story and I literally just choked. I just couldn't tell it. I was just like, I can't tell them this horrible story.
0: <laughs> this is a horrible mm-hmm. story, you know?
1: <laughs> And uh yeah. even though you know, I myself realized that a lot of these stories weren't you know, they weren't told to be prescriptive, like, okay, here, go be exactly like these people. That wasn't why they were written. A lot of them were written as actually political satire against oppressive leaders of their day, or in order to teach a specific lesson of one kind or another about what not to do. You know, like there's a lot of, a lot of them are cautionary tales. And understanding that, you know, I still felt as though, just like I, you know, for years had been changing when I would read them children's books. You know, my, my twin sister and I both noticed that all the characters in children's books are male, and that sends a message to children, too. And so we'd been changing the characters to be females. But in addition to doing that, I just couldn't, I couldn't tell it the way it was written and feel like they would appreciate and understand the actual wisdom in this story. What, what is the value in this story? And so I told them, I made up a new version on the spot, driving in the car, and they said, oh, okay, you know, I like that. And I said, okay, so this is this, this is other version that you probably heard this morning and that you're going to hear in the Bible. And I told them that version, and they were horrified. They were like, I like yours much better, you know. And I said, well okay, but let's think about why a writer would have written this story. And actually, two. there's two different versions of Genesis, right? Why would these writers have tried to teach their community something with this story? You know, what what might they have been trying to say? And why did I say it differently in my story so that I thought you might be able to appreciate that wisdom better, right? And that's really how the project was born. It happened with other stories, and I ended up feeling the need to, you know, it's it almost is like when I when I think about a story and I think about these leaders and why they really wanted to help their communities and how, what the pearl of wisdom is inside the story that's kind of covered over with the muck of human mm-hmm. error, fallibility and patriarchy and culture and whatnot, how can I kind of wash it off and put it in a new setting so that I and my children and I don't know who else, can actually appreciate the wisdom and the beauty and the truth and the glory that's contained in this story. And that sounds incredibly arrogant, because it sounds like, well, I found the true meaning of it, but I'm hoping that other people will then change them again. You know, I mean, this is why yeah. to me, this is the the model we have in the Bible with two, narr- two accounts of Genesis of creation and four Gospels and Kings and Chronicles is when our stories aren't meeting the needs of our community, we rewrite them. That's the model the Bible well, that, gives us, and so that's what I'm doing.
0: Well, and that would be something I would uh, say too when I would go out and talk about rewriting our sacred stories, would be to give people to tell people to give themselves permission to do just that. And uh, you know, I would talk about all the different versions of uh, Demeter and Persephone, you know, as an example, you know, from just the mother daughter together with no Hades and rape to <clears throat> um you know the ones where Persephone went willingly to the ones where Persephone was abducted and raped, and you know we have all of these different versions and um it, and I think some people when they hear something's a myth or especially a bible story, they feel like maybe it's sacrilegious to change the story but you know i s but but I say no, <laughs> you know you can be yeah. divinely inspired too, you know if you. Want want to call it that, um, and, and, and I think it's important that we give ourselves that leeway.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I, I admit that I think it, it did make me nervous when I first started doing it, because I knew that people would think it was sacrilegious. I knew that there Ooh. would be people that were frightened, and, you know, would would see it that way, and would feel as though I was disrespecting the scripture and the tradition, Um And for me, it was really the opposite. I mean, in seminary, I was able to, you know, learn from these brilliant scholars and theologians how to understand the Bible the way it's meant to be understood and the way its authors meant it to be understood and the way it was written um, instead of as, you know, like I said, this sort of rule book handed by some being in the sky, you know, as this wonderful kind of treasury of... Uh, history and of um, of the way a community tried to make meaning and um, of how they messed up and how they, you know, got it wrong and they got it right and they tried again. And for me, when I first started working with these stories, you know, I realized that it removed a distance that I hadn't really known was there between me and the Bible, where now the Bible had become a friend. It was really comforting in a way it was like a part of Hmm. me and i'm a part of it and it it became a much more intimate relationship with these stories that had no fear left there's no fear this bible was no longer this distant thing that i had to kind of i don't know put on any kind of pedestal and make untouchable and even though seminary had really helped me with that actually rewriting the stories made it feel more like this beloved girlfriend almost, you know, like, hey friend, let me Mm -hmm. help, you know, let's let's do this together, you know, and so it's actually been beautifully comforting.
0: That's lovely. Well, um, we're going to take a break now and when we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the process you use when you try to rewrite something uh, from the Bible and um, and if there's more on the subject of uh how it feels to take something as revered as the bible and change it but uh first uh we have a word from joe carson the
2: psychic state is the collective unconscious which is that consciousness of the planet what's called the chronic mind the mind of the earth our
1: ancestors understood that the animal and divine were all connected they were together that there wasn't a separation and that's What we are trying to return to is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer
2: to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. (laughs) That's the sacred. And by that, I just mean Sweaty, fun, happy sex.
0: Well, you've been listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film, and it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of Goddess as Gaia. Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see these places yourself but haven't this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story the DVD comes packaged with a 45 page color mini book which goes even deeper into the material and you can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at dancingwithgaia.com that's dancingwithgaia.com so Trelawney um do you have a process when you uh, try to rewrite a Bible story? yeah, i um
1: i first i I read the story and I just sit with it for a couple of days and let it and just pay attention and notice what comes up with me if I let this story be more present in my mind as I go through life. And then I read some scholarly commentaries on it, on why, you know, what the cultural context was of this story, and what, you know, experts, theological and scriptural experts, actually, you know, say about why this story was written the way it was written and what it was trying to say. I let all of that kind of just sit with me for a while, and then I gradually try to, and just think through, just. As I go through my life, think through what's the, what's the wisdom in this story? What's the gift that this story has to give us that's the most beautiful, most powerful mythology gift of this story? And once that sort of gift, that pearl of wisdom, reveals itself to me, after that, the story basically writes itself. I kind of just sit down and write it. <laughs> And then I'll go back and kind of tweak it, ref- it a little bit to make sure it's clear, but it's really just a process of understanding what's the point of the story you know what why yeah. why is this a thing? why does this exist? what's the beauty of it and then it's then after that it kind of writes itself and and um but it's it's something that I'm sure is very affected by my own lens, and so I have my own my own ethical priorities and my own you know, spiritual priorities and um and I'm writing these kind of for children, which is easy because the Bible stories themselves sound kind of like they're written for children in a way. they're fairly simple narratives. Um, but, for example, in my Cain and Abel story, I made Cain and Abel two sisters, and uh, and so I get to this Cain actually you know gave vegetables to the community that were moldy in my story and Abel followed her and was shouting, come back, you know. And uh, finally, Abel caught up with Cain. Cain was sitting behind her house, staring at her vegetable garden. When Cain saw Abel, she jumped up and punched Abel in the face. Abel's nose started bleeding, and some of the blood dripped on the ground. Cain's hand bled as well, and her blood also fell onto the earth. Where the blood touched the ground, a vine grew. The vine grew very fast, and as it grew, it wrapped around Cain and Abel and held them close together. They struggled, but they could not escape. Then the vine grew a beautiful flower, and the flower had petals of many colors. The flower spoke. It sang. Sisters, the earth cries out with your blood. When one of you hurts, the other hurts as well. When you hurt, I hurt. When you hurt, your community hurts. We are all connected together. Sisters, you must. You must learn to live in harmony. You are your sister's keeper. You must learn that all are one in my embrace. So that's an example that's of me taking, you know, Cain killing Abel and the blood, the earth crying out with, with his blood and you, Am I My Brother's Keeper, you know, those messages and just sort of rewriting them in a way that I can kind of connect with more and feel more nurtured by in, in my own spiritual journey and it's my it's my own personality having a stamp on this just the way whoever wrote this thousands of years ago their personality had their stamp on it right
0: sure well and they and they had I, I mean I I don't mean this to sound cynical, um, but they had their agenda too. You know, these patriarchal stories had an agenda. I mean, I remember reading Merlin Stone called the Garden of Eden myth, the first piece of political propaganda, you know, uh, uh, gender, you know, oriented to um just dethrone the sacred feminine. And um Uh, you know, it just feels like, uh, I I know when I rewrite a goddess myth, I'm usually writing it with an agenda uh, for gender equality or female empowerment or something like that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, every single author has an agenda, and the only difference is some admit it and some don't. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Yeah, 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 absolutely. For
1: me, I think the thing that probably defines my approach theologically more than anything is um, liberation of various kinds Mm -hmm. and the need to sort of, I guess, I believe in healing and rebirth, and I believe that fear-based theology and fear-based approaches to community and, you know, truth tend to cause a lot of damage and backfire. And so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: uh, a lot of people have very fear-based approaches to Christianity, you know, that if you don't, you know, the the certain magician has to say these magic words over these certain foods and drinks and you have to take them and then you won't get, you know, tortured in this bad place, you know, and this sort of thing. I mean, this is very fear-based in my opinion. And I love communion. I love Eucharist. And I don't see it as something that needs to be done with magic and fear based you know kind of hocus pocus I and mean, superstition that's I'm not supernaturalist mm. in that way. I that you know the power of you know divine healing and redemption and salvation coming through you know food and drink shared in love in a community I mean these things right. started these love these started as people sharing with the poor members of their community. <laughs> them getting together and yeah. cheering so that nobody was hungry. That's how they started. Right. And they they got right. tr- turned into, like you said, because of an agenda, into this fear-based, very exclusive, restrictive thing. And the, people use fear-based you know, approaches and all kinds of stuff. And to me, I really, you know, I had this colleague, um, Ray Helmick. He was a Jesuit. And he used to like to talk about how the Bible says do not fear I don't know if he said it says it more than any other phrase or just he used to quote how many times it said it's like one well, of the most common or if not the most common phrase in the Bible do not fear and I, I kind of liked that he talked about that and to me if our stories can help us not be afraid and reach for wellness and compassion then they're doing their job and they're true stories mm-hmm. that's what truth mm-hmm. is to me
0: so what would you say to people who believe Christianity is too sexist or too hopelessly patriarchal or misused for violence and big-ish, bigotry uh, to actually stay a Christian? Um, I mean, I know I would really love the article you wrote in Feminism and Religion blog about not proud to be a Christian. So um, I'm curious how, you know, where you come down on that.
1: Yeah, thanks. I I feel like, I mean, to me this is, I feel feel really compelled to highlight the importance of pride and shame in the way our human psychology and our group psychology works um, and affects us and affects our choices and our behaviors because we're all so prone to this. If, you know, if people if people are Christian because they want to feel proud of being a Christian, then they're doing that because they don't believe that they as individuals are worthy of love and respect and are good themselves. And so they need to find a group, a club to belong to that they can then point to so they can feel good about themselves. And so then if something if somebody does something bad some leader of of that group or some group some structure from that group does some bad thing then the people have two choices kind of they can either leave the group because well they're ashamed to be associated with it now or they can try to minimize that bad thing that was done by kind of saying it wasn't that bad or dehumanizing the victims so, oh you know they they kind of deserved it you know or something mm-hmm. like that i mean they justify it somehow or minimize it somehow and that's just human nature that's how we kind of all are and the more people don't really feel their own sacred worth the more they'll point to groups to feel worthy and then the more they're really prone to just really unhealthy group-based behaviors of you know, being intolerant of other groups and of allowing their group to be really oppressive to other groups. And and so this is how, you know, all all con- human communities are like this. All human communities are messy, messy and flawed. And they, they're made of messy, flawed humans. And they often start by having really great ideas, whether they're secular groups or religious groups, you know, like there's you know been really great secular ideas like communism and whatnot um but then if people start making it be about the f- group identity about being on the right team and having chosen the right team then that's when the group loses sight of the ideas that it was founded on and that's when the people the members lose sight of their own moral compass because they just they're so worried about You know, being associated with the wrong team, and they want to make sure theirs is the right team. So, for Christianity specifically, I mean, if people, I know so many people who, you know, really progressive people who, you know, they're embarrassed by the way um, Christianity in America today or in, you know, partnership with colonizing forces in the past has um, involved some very oppressive, violent behaviors and ideas. And because of that they you know, they either want to say, Well, you know, I'm not Christian, I'm just kind of Jesusist, you know, I, I just believe in the Jesus ideas but I leave the rest of it behind or they wanna say, Well, no, I'm sort of not really Christian anymore, even though I grew up Christian and I really like certain things about it, but I'm just I can't call myself Christian because that name has all this other embarrassing stuff associated with it. And to me, when when people go there, what I what I wanna say is, Well, What's your goal? You know, the goal of being in a community shouldn't be to feel proud of that community because it makes you feel like you deserve a pat on the back for being in the right team. The goal should be that it's transforming you, and you're using the ideas in it to transform the world around you. You know, so whatever group you're in, you can either stay in it or leave it, but if you leave it just because you're embarrassed, (laughs) because you're feeling not proud then that's probably because you yourself need to feel good about yourself as an individual instead of as a member of the right team. That's kind of where I end up with that. And and that article, you know, I mean, I think it's it's very important for people to take responsibility for the things that people in their community do and work to try to heal the harms. And that's something that right. seminary actually hammers into people. You know, at, at Boston University, it just hammers into you. Well, these are all the oppressive things about Christian history and theology and whatnot. But with a sense of, like, the the whole world is made of movements and reformers. <laughs> you know, all of history is right. movements and reformers. And so you can either start a new movement or you can be a reformer. But, those, you know, you don't really have a choice. <laughs> you
0: know, those are really well, only really choices. Well, I guess my comment though is um and i I'm not disagreeing with you um i guess i'm i'm uh, where I have a little bit of a problem though is you know today's Christianity you know seems to be about prosperity gospels, and you know it's not about what Jesus taught or at least um, it the the loud people seem to be about prosperity gospels. You know, you have the religious right. Uh, you know, the, the supporting Trump, Roy Moore, uh, Kavanaugh. Um, how, it's hard not to be embarrassed when the team has become so toxic, and there doesn't seem to be much um redeeming value or moral compass left anymore I mean I remember reading about how Christianity used to be the social witness and uh, you know they were very much involved with uh, Roosevelt working together with the socialists and the communists and the unionists to get social security and you know now uh, you know now what do you hear a lot of the Christians teach uh, well if you're rich you have God's grace and if you're poor well you don't um, you know, it seems to have gone off the rails.
1: Well, I let me introduce you to a name that I think is really important in any conversation about that change, and that is the Institute for Religion and Democracy, the IRD. This is a secular group that is actually funded by corporate, Rich big money interests that developed a few decades ago in order specifically to undermine um, the, what what you 're calling you know the social gospel movement the the social gospel movement, and progressive ideas in mainline Christian denominations and so over the past several decades, there has been enormous amounts of money from secular groups, corporate groups thrown at undermining every attempt to be economically or socially progressive in mainline denominations. So it will harass pastors and it will fund opposition groups and all kinds of activity. I, I know a lot of pastors that have been personally affected by this, where it's trying very hard to neutralize the potential of mainline Christian denominations to have a progressive impact on public policy in order for these corporate rich folks to define the narrative and therefore further enrich themselves. So this is something that was deliberately done um, in a way uh, to try very hard to make Christianity become known for exactly what it has become known for and to silence and uh, intimidate and disempower um, anybody from progressive camps who try to speak out for the social gospel or for progressive ideas and and justice and things like this
0: And, and what's the name of the group again please
1: IRD Institute for Religion and Democracy
0: okay Okay.
1: Well, now that's not to say I that, mean I don't want to just that's the only thing. You know, I mean there anytime anytime people are afraid, they tend to fall back on more black and white ideas. So there there are two if you look at the work of Daniel Batson, there are two approaches to religiosity, two psychometric approaches to religiosity that most people tend to have. Either they have a quest approach or they have a more fundamentalist approach. And a quest approach is, you know, uncertainty or mystery is a positive word that I prefer, is a good thing and is not something to be frightened of. Change is okay. It's okay to think that in five years I'm going to believe something different from what I believe now. Um, In-group, out-group boundaries can be really relaxed and flexible. It's It's not important to make sure we know who's in and who's out. And compassion is a lot more important than doctrinal uniformity, than everybody thinking the same thing. So that's the quest approach. And then on the other side, there's the fundamentalist approach, which is, you know, change is bad. This is true. This will always be true. Uncertainty is bad. We have to know exactly everything black and white, very simple. And, you know, they have to have very clear group boundaries. You're with us. You're against us. And uh, compassion is not as important as staying true to, you know, obeying dogmas, dogmatism, right? And within the fundamentalist group, there's a subset of right-wing authoritarians that are the most intolerant of others. And so people have, whether whatever religion they belong to, they kind of tend to have one of those two approaches, and some people will be in the middle, obviously. But uh, people who are quest have much more in common with each other, whether they're religious, not religious, different religions, than they do with the fundamentalists in their own religion. And there are massive numbers of progressive, quest-style Christians in the United States today. I, I am I'm the... I'm an admin for a Progressive Christians Facebook group that has, you know, 8,000-some people, another group, Progressive Christian Mysticism, with another 8,000 people. I mean, I've got several more Progressive Christians for Progressive Muslims, Progressive Christian Feminists. I mean, thousands of people in these Facebook groups and millions of Christians across the country that are really very progressive and very hungry for connecting with other progressives and other quest-oriented Christians. And then, Mm -hmm. within the ecumenical community, you get people from various faiths and non-religious people, humanists and you know whatnot, all connecting based on progressive values and quest orientation. And they have a lot more in common with each other than they do with the right. fundamentalists in their own camp, whether it's the new atheists, you know, really hostile fundamentalist atheists, or whether it's the really, you know, hostile fundamentalist Christians or Muslims or whoever they are, you know, and the fundamentalist camps... They're just a lot more exciting for the media, you know I mean you well, can't so you think, I staged a protest think, against when Lebanon was bombed, and no one camera showed up. you know what I mean, like they didn't care I, my twin sister and I protested um well we I'm sorry, we um campaigned for marriage equality, huge sign Jesus the anti bigot, let my people marry nobody showed that they showed the people on the other side across the street opposing same-sex marriage so this is not what you see this is the media has an agenda too
0: well 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 thank you for that because my i was going to say you know where are the where are the progressive or even the moderate voices because it seems like uh they've stayed home you know but it sounds like maybe they're not staying home it's just Uh, Like when a women's march isn't covered, uh, the media has an agenda to not show uh, the support for uh, issues that, you know, don't benefit the 1%, perhaps
1: yeah and the and, like I said, the corporate interests are very interested in keeping the idea of Christianity tied to them. but I have so many pastor friends who get arrested all the time my friend Ian Meverack and my my friend Wendy von Courier, they get arrested for protesting pipelines or Kavanaugh or whoever you know they they they're always getting arrested for one thing or another, and you never see it you know <laughs> there are right. so many right. the moral well, movements. I- the moral movement in maine or in or in baltimore i mean these these are groups of Christians and pastors putting themselves on the line repeatedly, getting arrested repeatedly for progressive issues.
0: Well, and well, I'm glad to hear you say this because I thought all the progressive Christians were dead. I mean, you know, metaphorically, uh, (laughs) you know, because I mean, you never, well, you never hear from them, you know, and uh, I mean, it's it's like you always hear, well, where where are the moderate Muslims? Where are the progressive Muslims? Why don't they stand up against? you know, the fundamentalists in their in their religion and I mean I was feeling oh, the same they try way so about hard. the Christians. <laughs> yeah, no, the
1: moderate yeah. Muslims, same thing. They try so hard. They have hundreds of them signing, you know, things condemning the terrorists and nobody knows about it. It's it's very frustrating to be a I think that the fact that our media our main media are owned by, you know, very few oligarchs, it really does help it change the narrative and This is something that, you know, one reason why I use a broad range of things for media and why I think social media is so important. And uh, if you go to, you know, if you just rely on mainstream media, I think you get, you know, as much as I appreciate the importance of not of ke- being careful about fake news. I'm not saying, you know, go willy-nilly to whatever news site is up there. But there's, you know, for example, Democracy Now! or mm-hmm. uh, there's some other other people out there that are actually trying really hard to give a balanced, more informative look at what's really going on because you, mainstream media has an agenda, a very, very clear agenda, and it's hard to find. You know, it, social media, I think, is a much better place to find where progressives are making big changes and really being vocal.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, it's like well, that group that where well, you found yeah. me on feminism and religion. Nobody's heard of them. Who's heard of them? I wish no, everyone had no, heard, uh, you know. <laughs> I wish everyone had heard of Ellen, you.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I remember Bernie Sanders was talking about the fact that, you know, we needed to have uh, a media that, Uh, You know, we needed to somehow figure out how to have a media that would talk about these issues. And, well, it it makes you wonder, uh, are there no progressive uh, uh, billionaires out there, uh, you know, willing to fund uh, progressive-oriented programming, you know? It seems like there's enough of us that would support it. Um, I, I I don't know. You, has there ever been any talk about that?
1: You know, I I got to admit, media is not my my expertise, and so I don't think that I could give you a great answer on that. I, you know, I look to I try to keep a broad range of various media sites, and they're often now asking for donations. If you go to the the Guardian or you know things like this, they'll say, since you're here, can you give a donation? Because we don't want to be relying on oligarchic you know owners or on all kinds of sponsors that then we have to worry about pleasing and so you know i right, i right. I guess this is the kind of thing that it just takes it takes doing a lot of research yourself and i i mean yeah you know it this is the kind of thing that i wouldn't i wouldn't feel i don't know whether there's a billionaire out there that's saying, but I know that things like democracy now and the young turks and um you know think progressive and the hill i mean there's there's the nation magazine um there's mm-hmm. there's yeah. things out there that if you go to them, you can get better in perspective yeah. and I don't know how right. well funded they are and but right, um right. yeah
0: well um h- hang on one second, let me say uh to Anine, so she will know I see her popping up on the switchboard uh my guest for the second hour uh has uh You know, she's waiting in the wings here. Uh, But Trelawney, my last question for you before I let you go, because we are coming up on the hour here, getting back to the idea of rewriting these Bible stories and mythology, um, how have your stories been received?
1: Uh, Thanks. You know, I think that there are obviously going to be some people who are very frightened of this idea um and so every now and then i bump into them but overall the people that respond to me about them generally respond with uh fairly dramatically it's almost like i'm scratching an itch they didn't know they had or a hunger i'm, fe- I'm satisfying a hunger they didn't know they had and so i'll regularly have people tell me that the stories made them cry for example, and a lot of people have asked, you know, when are these going to be published? And I'm hoping that um, Sochi and Gina, the runners of the Feminism and Religion blog site, they really want to publish it. I'm hoping they'll be able to get it on their agenda soon, because I think a lot of people have been asking, you know, look, we really want these stories, and uh, you know, we need things like this to help heal. Um, all, Like you said in the beginning, all of the messages that we get that are toxic that need healing, you know, and sometimes it's not enough just to say no to the stuff we don't like. We have to feed the stuff we do like. We have to grow mm-hmm. and nurture and nourish the, the stories and ideas and truths of peace and, right. um, you know, of, so of did beauty. I, just hear
0: you, that, I, I think I'm a little confused. Did I hear you just say that? Um, there might be a book of your, of, of the different stories you've rewritten. Is, is that what you meant? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Sochi and and Gina have indicated that they want to publish them in a book. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's just about, it's just about getting it done and we're all busy, you know, (laughs) but, um, but yes, yes, the hope is to get them out there in a book form and, and to keep writing, you know, get more books out there and uh so how many I,
0: yeah. how many how many have you rewritten now? I mean, do you have a well, lot? Well, I've only uh, rewritten
1: 10. Um which I think is a good you know, I think is a good start for a book. Um yeah. and but I'm going to start this fall rewriting more because <laughs> now I'm in charge of my children's Sunday school class and they will be demanding more. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure I'll you. have another 10 done by the end of the year. Uh and that yeah. Yeah, was exciting
0: it It is exciting, and um, I want to say thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and uh before I let you go, uh I know we didn't get to everything, uh but I think it's been a great talk. I wonder uh you give you the last word here. Is there anything you'd like to share with listeners that I didn't think to ask you about
1: um no i don't I don't think so, although I think I just um. I guess I just would say that to, I think it's important for me, it's been an important part of my journey, to go ahead and have my faith on my own terms. My family comes from a Celtic background, from Cornwall, that's where my name Trelawney comes from. and. Researching into Celtic Christianity and how, you know, before the Normans and the Romans came, the Celtic Christianity was really very flexible and mystical and nature oriented and um, not so dogmatic and centralized and whatnot. And finding my own path to have my own faith on my own terms and blending it with things that I find helpful from various sources is. It's really, to me, what humans have done throughout all of history to make their own meaning construct that will bring wellness within them and through them to their communities. And just not to be afraid of that, you know, just to go ahead and whose world is it? I'm going to leave them with my dad's words, you know, John Grenfell, who passed away in April. You know, it's, it, whose world is it? And not to be afraid right. to go ahead and uh, find a, a way, a path, that brings wellness and not to be afraid.
0: Gotcha. I totally agree. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Trelawney, thank you so much. I know that you are always welcome back on the show. Uh, I want to send people to the Feminism and Religion blog uh, and uh, read uh, a number of the different um, stories you have there. You have a feminist retelling of Cain and Abel. You have the Garden of Eden uh, that you retold. Uh, you have that great article about um, you know not being proud to be Christian. You may even have more that I'm unaware of. So uh, listeners, go to the Feminism and Religion blog and look at all the great stuff there, but uh, most definitely look for Trelawney Grenfell Muir's um, Uh, contributions. Thank you. Thank you so much for the work you're doing in the world. It's been a delight to talk to you tonight.
1: Thank you, Karen. Bless you and all your work as well. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Okay. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Well, we are about to go to our second guest. Uh, she is waiting in the wings. There, um, uh, her name is um, uh, Anine Vandemere, and she has a beautiful, beautiful book out uh, called "The Language of Ma: The Primal Mother." Uh, the subtitle is "The Evolution of the Female Image to Four Thousand in Four Thousand Years of Global Venus Art." Uh, I am going to unmute her, and we will start our chat in just a minute. Uh, But before we do, I want to just share something from Pat, our roving reporter. Uh, She sent me this quote uh, by Aldo Leopold uh, to share with everyone, and I think we can probably all agree. Uh, It goes like this, quote, we abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect, unquote. And that comes from Aldo Leopold. And uh, when I'm finished uh, chatting with uh, Anine, uh, I have a great story for you that Pat sent in uh, about Indian students who mailed 20,000 plastic food wrappers back to manufacturers. Uh, I think you will enjoy that. Um, so let me um, uh, introduce uh, my second guest to uh, everyone tonight. Um, I'm going to be speaking uh, Well, she's here with us uh, Anine Vandermeer She's a historian, theologian, symbolist uh, Author of The Language of Ma uh, We're going to delve into the beautiful Venuses, uh, their meaning and function We'll learn about the cultures That created them We'll tackle how the art is handled in academia Particularly since Gimbutas' work has been vindicated And there have been retractions From Renfrew and Hodder At uh, Chateau uh, we'll talk about the recent exposition in Anatolia, Turkey, uh, and the latest discoveries at uh, Golbeki-Tepke. Uh, so, Anine, uh welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine.
2: Well, thank you, Karen. Pleasure to be with you. From Holland, well, very early so in the morning here.
0: Yes, yes. Um you are I I believe it's 4 a.m. where you are. Uh, thank you so much for uh, your willingness to uh call in at this um uh this inconvenient uh hour. Uh we uh really look forward to speaking to you about your wonderful work. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Um,
0: uh, and just a little bit more, I want to share of your bio uh so that the you know the full length and breadth of your um uh, you know, your accomplishments are known uh, to the listeners. Uh, Anine uh, has written several uh, authoritative books on the hidden history of the feminine and of women and their forgotten contribution to evolution and civilization, uh, digging her story out from under history in order to write our story. Uh, Where necessary, she balances the established image of woman and man for the purpose of achieving equality, harmony, balance, and peace for the world. In 2008, she set up the Pan Sophia Foundation as a school of wisdom in the 21st century where the raising of consciousness, spirituality, and empowerment of women are combined. And as a speaker, Anine is very much uh, in demand both in the Netherlands and internationally. She lectures comprehensively on women's studies, all over the world and in an integrated and interdisciplinary manner and her website is uh, pansofia-press.nl pansofia pressml so um anine let's uh, start at the beginning uh let's talk about the venuses or the venus figurines um you know a lot of my listeners know a lot about this but some are very new to this uh, a lot of my listeners uh uh you know are at the beginning of their journey um let's let's talk about um why they're not pinup girls and who do they really represent
2: Yes thank you Well for me it was a long long uh journey long trip to uh, come to the uh, insights i have gained in uh, in long years of study and travelling also so what do you do when you travel you 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 buy um the books that are uh, around the sites or you go to the book, go, uh, big bookshops in the countries around the mediterranean syria egypt greece um and so on italy Uh, I started with the Mediterranean because in northern Western Europe so much has gone. And uh, so when you go um, to the areas around the Mediterranean, you find a lot of uh, uh, feminine art. And then um, in our handbooks, it's all... Uh, the descriptions are, uh, well, uh, these are quite uh, simple and, uh, you know, they're not interesting. They are handmade. They are primitive. And then I saw that in at the site of uh, the art, where the art really was found, uh, they saw it differently. They were talking about... Um, sacred art and about uh, mother goddesses that name often also in creed uh, was mu- much used and i was startled why do the western academic uh, literature why does it picture feminine art like simple and um, pin-ups and uh, erotic art and why um, see the, the diggers, the archaeologists of the site, see it differently? So I saw this huge difference in in um, um, the interpretation. And that's uh, because I am a really, uh, I like to research. I like to find out what's behind uh, the thing. I'm always looking for her story underneath his story. And I found out that... Uh, Western academia is very male-oriented in describing uh, the feminine art. So I started to work and collect all these catalogues and making pictures everywhere I went. Also in the big museums: the Louvre in Paris, Berlin, uh, New York, the me- uh, Metropolitan, um, of course the British Museum where mm-hmm. I love to go because there's a lot of art there, and um, well, and then slowly, slowly I got other insights, these, because I I started to use the word Venus, because uh, in the 19th and the 20th century, the literature, the academic literature of those ages were talking about Venuses, so I used the term Some think this is very patriarchal, because Venus, uh, it gives you an an erotic interpretation on feminine art. But I started to use it because it was a traditional label. And then Mm -hmm. I found out slowly, 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 it's all about uh, primal mother art, clan mother art. And um, I also found out that clan mother art so the primal mothers of the clans, of hunter-gatherers and first agricultural, agricultural cultures, they were deified. And their uh, body, uh, their, their body uh, positions, their body poses, um, I found out that there were many, many, many symbols that, that were uh, coherent and consistent all over the world because afterwards I started to travel in India, I went to the Far East. Uh, So many, uh, for example, so many uh, symbols um, were, you know, overlapping. um, And so uh, slowly, slowly, a new language was revealed to me, a language of feminine symbols, sacred symbols, starting with the vulva, the triangle, or, and in and several other shapes, or oval, and starting with red ochre, like uh, the, the 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 symbol for menstrual blood, and uh, mm-hmm. the blossoming of fertility, and then then slowly, slowly, a global language of images, so a sacred uh, icon iconography of the sacred feminine, of the divine feminine was revealed to me. And uh, therefore, my book was named The Language of Ma, the Primal Mother, the Evolution of the so are you in, in 40,000 name... years.
0: So are you yes. saying then the Venuses represent the Primal Mother, all the different varieties of uh, the Venus, uh, you know, represent the Primal Mother as the... Uh, giver of life, sustenance, everything we need on earth to sustain ourselves.
2: Yes, exactly. That is what I mean. Yes, and okay. uh, she has many and- forms
0: well Many on, on the front of your cover uh on the uh, on your cover you have the beautiful sleeping goddess of of Malta that was found in the uh in the hypogeum um i'm curious about that um it, it, have you uncovered anything uh that points to uh i mean it, have, they, have they learned what the hypogeum was really used for, for? was she really uh, you know, for dream incubation, uh, you know, the fact that she's asleep on this couch. Um, I wonder if there's been any new information on her pose and, you know, what, uh, how they use the hypogeum.
2: Yes. Um, uh, I was there in 2009 with Jean Shinoda Bolin and her goddess gang. And mm-hmm. I was their guide, also in the hypogeum, so I, I, it's nice to uh, to tell to tell this. But um, the, you know, now you you come to a, to the problem of interpretation. I just uh, read uh, uh, the um, Oxford Handbook of Prehistoric figurines. Of, uh, um, edited in the year 2017, so one year ago. And when you, so there are articles about uh, global Venus art, they are talking about women, so no sacred interpretation, no primal mother, um, only women with an important uh, uh, social position in their communities. Um, and also the article about Malta, you know, is giving a lot of new information, but is interp- the interpretation is uh, like uh, what I would call new archaeology. It's mechanic. It's from the outside. It's uh, not giving an inside uh, interpretation of what these women. Um, were in in their communities, uh, very important leaders, first leaders of humanity, shamans,
0: healers,
2: of course, bringing peace and harmony in their communities and guarding it. So, when you go to the Hypogeum and when you read the traditional academic Maltese literature, you don't find any sacred interpretation. That is the problem of today. So you have to really rewrite history and to, to go into a new 21st century sp- spiritual and symbolic interpretation. And when I use these um, entrances, I see the sleeping lady Uh, who was found uh, very deep in the Hypogeum, so in the third deepest level, in the snake uh, pit, so people offered um, to uh, their ancestors, and uh, they offered also this little statue of a sleeping lady covered with a red ochre, and sleeping and in a, a kind of trance sleep, so, she's leaving her body, she's making a cosmic um, voyage, and she is uh, getting information, um, outwardly information, and bringing it into her community, and healing the people um, with that information. That is my opinion. She's a priestess. Okay. She's a shaman, yes
0: lovely lovely um and 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 that makes perfect sense um you know especially considering what we think uh you know their practices of the time were um so how do um so the the
2: and sorry Karen, sorry the to f- interrupt sorry but, uh, this is not only in malta you had this this um temple incubation and sleeping uh therapies uh, collectively and individual in all kinds of temples in Egypt in Syria in Greece Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so it's not only it's not incidental it is belonging to a culture where the the, the feminine qualities the sacred feminine qualities were were very much respected and appreciated and were needed uh, to guard the peace and harmony in harmony right. and of harmony.
0: Yeah, it's uh, certainly yeah. something much much needed to be restored uh, to the center of our societies today. Um, so, uh, what what were uh, what war, were or are uh, the functions of the Venus figurines? Did it vary from uh, culture to culture, or was it uh,
2: universal? In my opinion, it's universal, uh, it's global, but as I said, the traditional academic interpretation of the new archaeology, of uh, processual and post-processual archaeology, will not agree with me, but I see a global, um, and I found lots of new information from Japan, from India, from Peru, from Mexico. It's all about ancestress. The ancestress, um, uh, me... the grandmothers. Uh, well, they they, are, they stay a long time because we have this new grandmother theory that the grandmothers were very important for uh, the growth of clan because they were keeping the sacred knowledge and they uh, fed the, the children of their daughters and. Educated them because they had time, so the grandmothers were important and when the grandmothers die, um, they make a little image, sometimes uh, a very rubenesque image, and then that image will will um that little statue or little figurine, or even they call it sometimes an idol when it 's very abstract um then um, the spirit of the grandmother who passed away lives in that little statue. So you can, Mm. when you menstruate, when you go into the dark, in the darkest caves, or in the deepest parts of the caves, when you go together with the group of... um, menstruating or post-menopausal uh, um, women or, and little girls and everybody go into the cave and you go into the dark there you can shamanize these uh, spirits these souls of ancestors and this is done all over the world so in the first interpretation we must see these icons as images of the souls of ancestral mothers, who stayed with their clans and who were protecting and guarding the living ones, and then you uh, also found find uh, the interpretation, later interpretation. I could go into Japan, I could go into India. I won't do that. I would, I would like to give a global interpretation universal imputation sometimes the spirits of nature uh, but the ancestors live in nature they are metaphor- morpho- morphosized in the landscape in the rock in the mountain in the tr- in the mm-hmm. tree so mm-hmm. when you go out and when you go into a megalithic uh, structure of stones there you, there you can meet the ancestors, the souls of the ancestors, you can shamanize, you can contact them, you can communicate them, and when they want to be incarnated again, you can fertilize yourself as a woman of the clan, with the souls of the ancestors, and you can rebirth them, and in my opinion, this is the, the key, the key knowledge, so rebirthing, the, in the cyclo, cyclic movement of birth, death, and rebirth. So nature is showing this picture, and human beings are, are in this cyclic, cyclical movement all over the world. So this is not ancestral veneration, what academic labels give, but this is really the knowledge of rebirth and reincarnation.
0: So let me ask you, when you go to uh, um you know, a site like say Newgrange or uh, you know, one of these these other um, you know, henge tombs or something that, you know, they have so many of in um, you know, Ireland or England, um, do you think uh this is what was going on there too and it goes way beyond just the solstices?
2: Yes. Yes, yes, it was a lot of astronomical, astrological knowledge. These people, especially the megalithic, uh, the builders of the megaliths, all over the the western coast, and in northern Africa, and in Malta, and in Sardinia, and everywhere, Ireland, uh, England, uh, Denmark, Holland, we also have them here, Um, that the the builders of these megalithic structures were uh, not barbarous or simple. They were very evolved people who who, who knew a lot about the cosmos and who could contact these energies. And they were working with them. So which of
0: the Venuses is, is the oldest? Which uh I mean I know there's the Acheulean goddess that uh I know there's controversy around her. Some uh seem to have not decided whether uh she was a natural formation or uh maybe the oldest piece of art and uh I and, and I forget there was, uh, there were a few others too The names are escaping me at the moment but uh, but yes. let me ask you, you're the expert what are the <laughs> oldest Venuses that we've been able to find?
2: Well, uh, there are two Venuses very old and they are really called Venus eh? so I use, I, 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 I want to, to, to stay, stick to the word Venus because Venus is also the goddess of love and not only erotic love but love in a in a in a binding and and harmonious and in an all-levelled love, family love, uh, parental love, um, uh, love for your community, love for the earth, love for the cosmos. That is um, the goddess of love. So it's not it's not bad to call these ancestral primal mothers Venuses because they were loved and they loved. And um, because that was the key to the peaceful societies they were, they were central in. And one of the oldest, to come back to your question, we found is the Santan Venus from Morocco. She is 500,000 years old. And um, they, these are very, um, quite abstract uh, images, but they are feminine. And um, the second... Uh, oldest is the Venus of Birket Ram uh, from Israel and she is uh, let's say 260,000 years old and we knew that she's feminine and she really was carved from a stone because we found some examples next to her that prove that people were trying to carve a female image a feminine image with big breasts and Rubenesque um, uh, bellies and bottoms, and um, so they tried, and and finally they succeeded in carving the Venus of Bir-Kadram in the from the Golan Heights in Israel. But so let me ask you,
0: Anine, um, what what um, at what phase of humanity uh, was back then? Would it have been the Neanderthal?
2: Yes, it's a very old human being, ancient uh, uh, human being, and my book starts with uh, 40,000 B.C. So we have uh, the hunter-gatherers period from 40,000 to 10,000 B.C., and then after 10,000 this huge deluge of water changing the world. And after um, that, uh, the first agricultural societies come from 10,000 to zero. So my book is covering 40,000 years of global feminine art. And uh, Göbekli is one of these things, um, one of the major sites, Göbekli Tippe. I was there also in 2007. Um, Is one of the major sites. Just uh, well, they are working there very uh, for. Well, it's, of course, it's war now over there. But um, um, 10,000 BC, so it's very, very megalithic uh, structures, very old megalithic structures. But I, one of the oldest Venuses in the period of 40,000. Uh, till 10,000 B.C. is the Venus of Holefeld from Germany. Yes. So the Germans yes. they have so, and, and the, she's really beautifully carved, tri, uh, um, three-dimensional uh, she has a big breasts she has enormous um, uh, belly and uh, she has um, no head she only has a hole, so she was a pendant, and she's quite small. So you could hang this icon in as a pendant, and you can walk. You could walk from camp to summer camp to winter camp, as people did around 40,000 BC. And then, so Anine, let me ask. Let me ask you. Um, do you think
0: these, uh, you know, let's say these Neanderthal people? i I gathered that they were probably more sophisticated than most people probably give them credit. Do you believe that they were actually worshiping a feminine face of God or this primal mother was more about the ancestors or or both
2: well um first uh, karen um the the Venus of Holy Fels was carved by um the early European um, Homo sapiens, the Kormagnon, so not the Neander- Neanderthaler. She was carved by um, uh, the human being which, which, was, uh, which came over Europe uh, from that time on. And um, I think uh, the Venus of Hohlefeld, um when she was found in 2008, and she was uh, given to the world by uh, the archaeologist, uh, Nicholas Connard. I met him in in Holland, where he gave a lecture. And um, and when she was uh, uh, given to the press, she was pictured as a, as a pin-up girl, as a playgirl of the old stone age. It was horrible, Karen. Horrible to see such a beautiful image, even till the day of today, brought into the world as a pin-up, as an erotic image, mm-hmm. and it's all about uh, uh, ancestral art, and I would say she was the clan mother, she was very important to the clan, and to several clans, she was the center, and she was a center of wisdom and knowledge, and... Um, j- It was an oral tradition, so they, they told the stories about her, about her wisdom, about her knowledge, about her leadership, and about, and about her, her technical information she, she gave to later generations, and Mm -hmm. because this knowledge was so important, at the end, she got the sacred, Uh, she was sacred, because, she passed away. She was a soul in the afterlife who was living there. She was a living soul. So that is a sacred thing. And um, afterwards, after a long time, we see that ancestral art is deified. And then we talking about goddesses. But that is much, much later. So, you okay. see, so I would so, stick yeah, to so the, the word primal the- mother primal mother. So
0: the the concept of goddess is something that comes much later. So the Neanderthals who were doing the birdcat rams, who were uh, those images that were 500,000 years old, I mean, it's probably impossible for us to know what they really thought, what they really believed. But it was obvious that life came from the woman, um, yes. You know women could bleed without dying. There had to be some sort of magical uh, i don 't know magical maybe sacred uh, beliefs around this uh you know piece of art uh, or um, you know image a uh, magical image that they Um, created 500,000 years ago. Uh, It might not have been uh, a full-blown concept of a god or a goddess like we think of today, um, but maybe it was something magical and powerful to them.
2: Yes, the life force, which was in Mm -hmm. nature, which was in... uh, Because when you use the word goddess, you have... um, there's a risk that you put this life force outside of yourself. Eh? The God is far away. It's a really patriarchal imagery, uh, far okay. away, uh, abstract, not not protecting, not loving, uh, far far away of human being and punishing. So uh, and punishing and and this this horrible hell concept. Uh, they had another view of life and we know this for sure because we study the indigenous and non-western cultures who still believe these things people who live in nature are living with the cycle of nature and living with the life force in nature and uh, old and modern cultures nature people experience this life force as feminine but it's also balanced with the masculine it's it's also a balanced energy you could say feminine male because uh, we see in this ancient Venus art global Venus art we one of the body positions is the um, feminine male so it's a combination of the round and oval feminine and the elongated masculine form, some call it phallic. And uh, Maria Gimbutos also used uh, the word phallic bird goddess, because these elongated forms—you have the bird with the with the oval and round uh, body, and then the neck, the elongated neck—she called. Uh, she was mentioning the phallic form she she also okay. saw this combination of energies working together to create life so the well, feminine it makes sense. The, mm-hmm. sorry the, the the primal mother was f- me, feminine and male in one well,
0: and we know we've had goddesses where uh, they were uh, androgynous. Uh, you know where yes. they yes. Uh, some some yes. of the goddesses even had a phallus. I mean, we don't see those very often, but we know they existed. Uh, yes. You know. Well, I, I want to jump back and to what bad Becky Tepe. Aphrodite has a beard. Sorry, sorry to
2: interrupt. I, so, I no, no, that's okay. Would, would you
0: say that again? Because I, I was talking over you and I couldn't hear you.
2: No, I was interrupting you, but I was, um, uh, I was saying that uh, Aphrodite of Cyprus, sometimes she has a beard. So um, uh, they, they are really andro- androgenic and androgyne. Yeah. Uh, in Germany they don't like that word because you start with the word andros, men, and gynos, women. And they say, well, it's a patriarchal term. And even the word hermaphrodite—it's a patriarchal term. Always starting with Hermes, and then secondary Mm. Aphrodite. So, well, what's um, a better?
0: Is there a better term than hermaphrodite or androgynous?
2: Yes, you could call. You could uh, say bisexual. They have uh, both sexes in one, uh, without Mm -hmm. uh, putting the uh, the male in, in the first place. Um,
0: gotcha. Bisexual yes. Um so let me I want to ask you about Gobeki Tepke. Um two questions, uh and I don't want to linger here too long, but just if there, if there are quick answers. Uh, have they figured out what Golbeki tepke is about? I mean, I realize that site is barely uncovered. It's uh, There's so much that they haven't even uncovered yet. And I know that they ha- they never show, uh, you know, when they do a special uh, on television of Golbecky-Tepke, they never show the shield and the gig that we know was found there and I'm told was hidden away in the archaeologist's um, shed or something. Um, I'm wondering if you know anything about the Sheila or what Tepke tepki have they come to any uh, realization about what that site was about?
2: Yes, you know, a lot, a lot of, uh, I, I try to answer short because you asked me to do so, a lot of uh, diverse, diversity, but in my opinion, the Sheila is wonderful, she was uh, probably she was depicted uh, above a birthing bank where people could birth, uh, women could birth in the um, uh, in a special building. And uh, we also uh, in Gebekli Tepe there were no find found no graves and only recently people found two skulls. So it's also about ancestor. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it veneration. About, but I would call it a place to contact the ancestors of coming together of of enormous uh, amounts of people and of meeting each other there and um, probably uh, having the sacred marriage and birthing, rebirthing okay. the
0: ancestors
2: because we have these okay. pillars and. Uh, with hands on the belly, and uh, in my opinion, uh, the Sheila is feminine. The statues are, uh, show a lot of uh, feminine iconography, and uh, the Sheila is, is, you know, denigrated as secondary and later, but she's so important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um I and you know because uh time is going by so quick here um yeah, I uh, yeah. want to ask you about the seven clan mothers and their daughters um yeah. uh, that point uh, it could we speak about that a little bit
2: Oh yes I would love to Karen it's such an important find a uh, recent find in Germany and I have got uh, my, my German sisters, I've got a lot of contact, I give, gave a seminar for them, because this Ma book, the language of Ma, is translated and updated in German, and therefore I had to do a lot of new research. And uh, I'm also going to update this English, the English version of 2013 in, in a book-on-demand way. Uh, it's coming, but on Germany in the Bodensee so it's uh, in southern Germany they found a house on poles in the lake and there were 2,000 little fragments fallen into the water and then they dived so there was underwater archaeology and then they dived all these pieces, they dived it up and it took 20 years of reconstruction and when they were finished in 2016 there were revealed seven ancestral mothers uh, very uh, with with round heads, sun-like and cross um, uh, bands and in between there were trees with 13 branches and we see in those trees the abstract birthing position because the abstract feminine art is also about birthing souls again so it's it's really a birthing tree of giving several generations
0: hello yes yes we we still hear you keep going
2: Yes. Oh, sorry. I, I you were gone a little. So, my German sisters, you're here. Yes. My German sisters yes. say we found in this house it's not um, the first Neolithic uh, find findings findings that prove that was um, a clan mother art in a matrilineal. Neolithic community, 4000 BC, which is very, very old, which uh, was there before the Kurgan um, uh, interaction and um, invasions took place. So we have the proof, we have found the proof of a matriarchal, matrilineal, neolithic community which was respecting the feminine in seven clan mothers with their daughters and with this is 13 level tree of women in birthing position.
0: Wow. And for someone who wanted to see these objects, is there a website or something?
2: Yes, it's all in German as far as I know, but you could you could try. Uh, I don't have this uh, really here, but you could try um uh Clan Mothers, Bodensee, Ludwigshafen, so it's in southern Germany and uh, of course there are a lot of German uh, websites and I don't know in how uh, if they're translated in English yet. But Um,
0: Well, we could at least see the pictures.
2: Yes, yes. And what is so amazing about these seven clan mothers, that they have protruding breasts, which are really very beautifully uh, painted. So you have a flat wall, and then you have these protruding, life-giving breasts. So it's so wonderful Karen that we found this. And even in Germany, well it's a spectacular find found. And I was in Vienna and I saw that these houses on poles in lakes that there are a lot of cultures, the linear band cultures, um Neolithic cultures that were you know, um, they were having villages uh, through uh, Austria through Hungary. It was really widespread. This culture—it's not a single place, but was belonging, belonging to a much bigger Neolithic culture.
0: So you're, so you're saying in the villages they lived on, uh, in houses on poles, and this yes, was over ch- the yes. water. It, or yes. it, it was either over the it was over the water, so um, I would imagine uh, this wasn't just one isolated house. This was probably part of a village.
2: Yes, 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 yes. It was a it was a, a ritual. Uh, let let's say like like a kind of temple. And Maria Gimbutas is talking about uh, the miniature temples and the bigger temples. Which were all um, uh, ruined when the Kurgan invasions took place. There were no temples anymore. But I could, you could say this is a, is a place where people, hello, their ancestors, mothers. Hello. Okay. All right. Yes. Yes.
0: We're we're still together. We're we're still connected. Um, I know you also wanted to mention. Um, uh there was new developments in interpreting figurines uh one example was bruno david i believe uh something yes. about cave art um yes. what what about that did you want us to know uh, anine um
2: well um you know i'm i'm sometimes i'm harassed by by this new archaeology approach of interpretation of Venus art like they're simple uh, women, there's nothing sacred. They are fat, and they are probably they are ill, and therefore they are so fat. So um, um, Bruno uh, David is uh, one of the ar- uh, the younger archaeologists from Australia, who is giving a new way of looking to cave art. He uses the formal. Um, methods of all kinds of very brand new techniques to really point out the exact date Um, the x-rays, the AMS um, using of scanning all the levels in one image, in one uh, picture so sometimes there are 406 different levels in one picture and they all can be scanned and dated. So he uses uses these wonderful new techniques, but he also uses the second technique. He's he's calling this the informal technique. And because he's an Australian archaeologist, he's going to his uh, Aboriginal fellow brothers and sisters, and he's um, talking and he's inquiring and he's asking the elders of the, these aboriginal clans, why did you paint, do you paint like this? What did the elders of former generation meant by it? So he's, he's also informing himself. That's why it is called the informed interpretation. He's combining new techniques with this informal informed sorry informed uh, technique so uh, this is the way I think we have to continue working asking uh, the indigenous people why do you do these things and uh, using the brand new techniques of dating okay
0: that makes sense to yeah. me, and, it's, and that's inspiring yeah. to know that, um, you know that, you know, rather than doing, uh, you know, that this new approach is on the horizon, uh, maybe we can go to the source, so to speak, and um, uh, have new interpretations of, um, of, of herstory.
2: Yes, because, you know, the new archaeology, the processual and post-processual, is very mechanic. They, uh, the, the, the new archaeo- archaeology excludes religion and culture in the interpretation. They are just women, just normal women who are sick, who are ill. Yeah, they're People marginalized. Fat. Yeah,
0: yes. and, I mean, Mark, you, go into the muse- you go into the museums, the British Museum, the Louvre especially, I think, uh, was uh and And you know you don 't even have these goddess figurines uh you know they they 're not even marked as goddesses. Um, I was surprised though in uh in Japan I forget uh which city we were in, I think Tokyo that the Jomon goddesses were actually labeled mother goddesses. Um, it, that surprised me a bit. I didn't expect them to be labeled as a goddess. I thought they were just going to be labeled as a female figurine or something.
2: Yes. Oh, I'm so happy you call you you mentioned the uh, Yomon art, Karen, because um, as I start, uh, st- uh, told in the beginning, in the areas where uh, feminine art, uh, Venus art, primal art, mothers. Primal mother art is found a lot. Like in Japan, they found 18,000 dogu statues. Dogu is doll. It's another way of um, calling feminine art. their dolls. Has a uh, uh, kind of denigrating um, term. But in Japan, uh, recent uh, research. Um, is giving that this, so of these 18,000 dolls, dogus, uh, uh, together they form the Yomon art, and it's very old, so 16,000 B.C. till 300 B.C., so it's a very long period of hunter-gatherers and Neolithic agricultural societies, so the most ancient ones are stones, 13 stones, and they have breasts. So they are feminine. So they are, these are ancestral mother stones. And then, then you see six, six um, periods of evolution in the art, and it's all about ancestral mother art. Even the Japanese... Uh, researchers, the most recent one, the professors in the university, they all are talking about ancestral art, about uh, spirits of nature, about uh, the the Dogu statues, Um, they're evolving and getting quite complicated, and they are buried next into the ancestral graves, and there the people come together to honor the ancestors and to rebirth
0: Okay. So when you say rebirth the ancestors, are we talking about reincarnation?
2: Yes. Yes. In my opinion, we do. Okay. uh, Um, Go ahead. um, So I must tell you something about the Istanbul figurine, because we are talking about Iron Hodder, who is uh, uh, digging in uh, Çatalhöyük, and uh... in turkey and in 2005 they found the Istanbul figurine you can you can look it up at the internet and in 2014 Einhoder uh, edited a book Religion at Work in Katal Huyuk there he is um, uh... Is, is, is a post-processual technique of reintegrating religion and culture into archaeology and anthropology, like Maria Gimbutas did.
0: And yeah, didn't not, she get in trouble for doing that? <laughs>
2: yes, yes, but that, were the, that was the 60s, 1960s, and then this new archaeology thing was a big reaction on her work and the work of James Mallard. So einhotter is... Uh, successive. is is, is one of the later archaeologists following up uh, Mm Mellard. And what does he say about the Istanbul figurine? On the front we see a Rubenesque um, feminine image with big breasts and belly and hips. But at the back we see a skeleton. So now this new interpretation of the Istanbul figurine is we see life the life force, in the front. We see the soul side, so the body part, living body in front, and we see the, skelet- the soul side at the back, which is skeletal, which is very stiff and abstract. So you see that they are reintegrating the soul aspect into Venus art, which is so, so very important. So what you're saying
0: is that it's a reflection of the cycle of life with the skeleton on the back and the life on the front. So does does Ian Hodder get it, or is he still sort of resisting, like he did for so many years, um, you know, the things that the women scholars were trying to make him see about the goddess figurines? I mean, is he finally starting to get with the program?
2: Uh, in my opinion, he's changing his view, like Colin Renfrew is doing. Uh, that's another point. But I, uh, Ian Hodder, he, um, because there were t- uh, was an article in this Religion at Work in Chitaluuk of 2014, which he edited, and that was, you know, um, the revisionistic theories of two. Uh, feminine archaeologist writ- writing this article, and he was talking in his overview about, about re-vi- revisionistic theories. So they they are they are revisioning Mela They are revisioning Gimbutas. Is isn't wow. that wonderful? Yes.
0: In our lifetime, we got to see it. That that is pretty incredible. Um, Anine, you you have uh, brought so much new information tonight. Uh, I'm just thrilled, uh, but we're getting short on time here. We have probably about five minutes left, so I want to leave it to you. Um, what, how do you want to spend that five minutes? What do you want to tell listeners? Well,
2: um, uh, two things. Uh, there's a lot of new information about Cyprus because Cyprus is showing us the exact overturn from feminine art to masculine art around uh, 650 B.C. We have found a temple um, with uh, 2,000 uh, male figurines. it was incredible. So we, Cyprus is very interesting. This is my first point. And my second point is, of course, my beloved Maria Gimbutas um I mentioned Colin Renfrew Also, he is um uh you know he is uh adhi- hiring her Kurgan theory and the latest information of 2015 and 16 and 17 by Swedish team of of um scientists and Danish team professor Christian Christi- Christianson and professor Elle Vilaslav, they are really confirming the theories of Maria Kambutas about the invasion of Kurgan uh, tribes, the first wave, the second wave, but also the third wave. There was really an invasion. When they prove it, these these researchers, recent research, prove uh, the genetic, uh, give the genetic proofs that these infiltrations were quick, and they were massive, and it was not a slow integration process, like um, uh, other uh, scholars, like Colin Granfrew and others uh, were saying. But, so we have the first wave, the second wave, the third wave, invasion, and the second phase of the third wave was assimilation and integration and they also proved that we have these war bands of young men who were who were uh going into the west with uh with these wolves uh you know the wolf uh, symbology and they were you know uh, forcing themselves uh, making war and dominating male-dominated, creating male-dominated societies, raping women, all these things. It is recently proven that the diet changed, that the vocabulary changed, so the linguistic evidence is there, the genetic evidence is there. We have the kurgan's we have the weapons, we have the st- stone mace weapons, we have the barrows, with all the individual graves, uh, where mainly men were buried, very individualized society. All this new proves Maria Gimbutas is uh, rehabilitated, and I really congratulate you, Karen, with this. Well,
0: um, you well, know, I'm so glad we saw it happen in our lifetime. I mean, she certainly deserved it. Um, yeah. Well, Anine, uh, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning uh, to be with us today. And I can't say enough about your beautiful, beautiful book, The Language of Ma, The Primal Mother, Um, I would recommend all my listeners have this in their research library. It's just an incredible body of work. You should be very, very proud.
2: Yeah, and I'm trying, I'm I'm giving, I will give an update with all the latest information, also about all these things, Joman art, Indian art, uh, Maria Gimbutas, and i would like to make a book on demand so that everywhere in the world australia japan they can print it um this this is a new modern way to um uh to to give the book to the world
0: yeah well uh this this has really been uh, a labor of love i mean this isn't this is an incredible work of art um thank you so much and i wanna uh you know i wanna uh, give you a standing invitation uh to come back I mean it seems like there's so much you could talk to us about uh but we've just run out of time tonight
2: yes yes, I would love to come back thank you very much, Karen Yes,
0: all right well, we'll stay in touch and we'll uh, we'll talk about um you know maybe some of the things we didn't get to tonight, yes. Yes,
2: pleasure, and thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you so
0: very much. Um, I I certainly appreciate your work. Uh, Listeners, it is uh, The Language of Ma, the Primal Mother, The Evolution of the Female Image in 40,000 Years of Global Venus Art uh, by Anine Vandermeer, a historian, theologian, symbolist, and author. Thank you so very much, Anine. It's been a pleasure to speak to you tonight. Yes. All
2: the best, Karen. All the best. Thank you. Good
0: night. Well, listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in tonight. I'm sure you enjoyed the show. Uh, Two wonderful guests tonight. I'm so pleased uh, to have in my archives... Uh, who brought us so much important information. Uh, That about does it for us tonight. Um, I uh, invite you to go to the archives uh, to uh, see what great stuff is there that maybe you haven't heard yet, Uh, and listen to this show again. There's been so much information shared. uh, You might want to listen to it a second or even a third time to catch it all all right that about does it for me tonight uh thank you for tuning in to voices of the sacred feminine and good night
1: with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has
0: anyone seen the bride and groom